we like to think of it sort of like a Tinder for water nerds that you could like swipe left, you know, and find all the people like, oh, you know, he's hot. Oh, yeah, that's hot. Because mostly, mostly, as you know, water utilities and, and water, water, a lot of water managers still operate in isolation. They're mostly just heads down doing their work. And like going to an AWWA meeting is like the only time to get out. And so we need to help the community be able to connect to these fabulous resources. That are that 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 would do a lot of good for water, but which they simply aren't aware of. And it's my I see my personal mission to try to break down those barriers and make those connections. Welcome to Water We Talking About, a podcast produced by Water Online. Hosts Jim Laurier of Maisie Injector Company and Adam Tank of Transcend Water, a dynamic boomer millennial combo, will help you demystify how to build a better brand for your business, keep current and prospective customers engaged with your company, and ultimately grow your sales. They interview some of the most interesting and unique water professionals who have used the art of storytelling to move the needle for themselves and for their organizations. So our guest today is Peter Fisk, the Executive Director of the National Alliance of Water Innovation. And uh, you know what we like to do, Peter, is introduce our guests on how we first got to know you and the work that you've done. And so for me, you and I met a number of years ago when you were CEO of Pax Water, and we found we had a mutual interest in biomimicry. That's right. That's right. I remember that first conversation. Yeah, the use of nature to as a design model for water technologies yeah. and uh, also the good work you've done with uh, uh, Put Your Science to Work. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And uh, so, you know, welcome. And, and we're really happy to have you as a guest. Thank you, Jim. So good to be here. So, Peter, we met. It's probably a year and a half ago now. Yeah, I think that's right. It was a mutual introduction from Christina Ahmadpour. Right. And what she said was, Peter is one of the most entrepreneurial, curious, intelligent guys I've ever met in water. You two. And she, and she told me, Adam and his team have got the most amazing thing going on. <laughs> so we have to meet people. So yeah, she did I mean, a great job. Yeah, I'm biased. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so I've, of course, followed, followed you since. And right, right when we first talked to you, it just started with Naui. It was sort of... Yeah. It was a little more than an idea at that point. And obviously now it's progressed to be much more than that. So I thought we'd start off there and just, Peter, where are you at right now? And just a brief history about how you've gotten there. You bet. So um, so guys, great to talk to you today. For starters, now he's up and running. Uh, I know people have been wondering uh, how long it's been. You all may remember that the first time that the Department of Energy talked about a major investment in desalination research was back in, oh gosh, 2016, I think. And, you know, in the change in administration, the new administration coming in took a long time to kind of get their feet about what they wanted to do. But we were watching that Congress kept putting money in the budget every year for the water hub. And finally, at the end of 2018, DOE released the call for proposals, and we then put together our proposal and our team. We competed through 2019 and in, at WEFTEC uh, in October of 2019, maybe September 2019, um, 
the Secretary of Energy announced that we had won. And so everybody was like, yay, you're up and running. We're like, not so fast. <laughs> because even after you, quote unquote, win one of these things, there is a long period of time where you have to negotiate a lot of the contractual details. So from September to February of this year, we were in essentially contract negotiations. But I'm pleased to report that on February 12th, 2020, the Nawi was finally born and we began to build the um, research program. So, you know, as you know, it is a five-year, $100 million investment from the Department of Energy to revolutionize desalination technologies. The program by design is a relatively early stage applied research program. So not so much a focus on piloting very promising technologies that are, you know, kind of just emerging onto the marketplace now, which is very important to do. This is to try to seed the ground with the next generation of technologies that will really vault desalination into a quantum leap in performance in terms of cost and energy, and also enable desalination to be much more widely used in a much more wide range of environments where we have what I call non-traditional water, water that's not economic to treat, so we're just throwing it away. It's wastewater, essentially. Can we essentially use those, those non-traditional water sources and essentially augment our traditional, you know, freshwater-based water supply. And so, yeah, so we're up and running, and I'm happy to give you more detail as, as to what, what pieces are in place and what we're doing. So, Peter, you know, one of the things that uh, Adam and I always joke about is this podcast isn't about talking about water. It's talking about talking about water. That's right. And so how are you going to send that message out of the good work you're doing and getting the word out to, to all the people that really should be interested in, in, the, in this, this uh, initiative? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. Uh, if we, you know, as, as you know, in water, if we simply knew what we knew, we'd be like three steps ahead of the game. So a lot of times good stuff is happening right. and we don't know about it, you know? Exactly. I forget who's the, who's the, the, the guy, the, the, the quote, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Oh. Who is that, Adam? Is it yeah. uh, I forget. Anyway, it's brilliant. And it's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. So, so for us, we have two challenges. One is we, we, we are, we're really, you know, it's top priority for us to engage the water community. So every talk that I start with when I when I talk at Cal Desal or Texas Desal, I say my title slide is, you know, the Nawi desalination hub, your desalination hub. Because I really want to emphasize to the to to our, you know, to the water community is look, friends, this is ours, right? We can do something with this thing. This doesn't belong to the DOE. This is investment they're making in us. And so the number one thing I try to do. Jim, is to promote engagement from the moment of my title slide through my presentation. One of the things practically, the challenge that we have is even though we have, you know, a rich group of academic universities and we have these wonderful national labs, there's not a lot of connectivity into the sort of frontier of what's happening in water treatment today. A lot of, a lot of gap exists. And so we're really trying to bring these two communities together. And one way that we're doing that is we're going to be building as part of our uh, program, uh, essentially a portal where members can come in and set up profiles and then have immediate transparency to everybody else in the community. 
So if you are, for example, a water treatment researcher, a grad student in her fifth year at Purdue, working on artificial intelligence for, um, you know, sort of uh, collection system management, you can immediately do searches and find the um, utilities that are interested in this space. You can find other companies that have, are working on software products in the space and vice versa. We like to think of it sort of like a Tinder for water nerds that you could like swipe left, you know, and find all the people like, oh, you know, he's hot. Oh, yeah, that's hot. Because mostly, mostly, as you know, water utilities and, and water, a lot of water managers still operate in isolation. They're mostly just heads down doing their work. And like going to an AWWA meeting is like the only time they get out. And so we need to help the community be able to connect to these fabulous resources that are that 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 would do a lot of good for water, but which they simply aren't aware of. And it's my I see my personal mission to try to break down those barriers and make those connections. That's it's this is so for anyone that's going to be listening to this, this is all four of you. Yeah. Okay. You four. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean this is this is gold for a couple of reasons. The first is you mentioned switching one word or or implementing one word, which is your your hub. That's right. One word makes all the difference. I mean, it makes a massive difference. People immediately think your, wait, what do you mean your, you mean mine? That's right. Oh, it's mine. Okay. Right. Why don't we get part of this too? It's, I mean, you see it all the time. You look at it as our resource. That's right. The water community's resource. And I like the fact, Pete, you talked about the younger professionals. You know, that's one of the reasons why Adam and I teamed up is because, yeah. you know, millennial, baby boomer. And so it's a, you know, it's an important aspect of what we see. Yeah. And I think also early career um, people in academia, um, you know, they really thirsting to have a career path that could have a genuine impact. And as you know, we've got such challenges ahead to pivot our entire economy, our entire technology base into a sustainable framework, not with respect, not just with respect to carbon, but with respect to phosphorus and nitrogen and all these other things that guess what? That's our business, right? Yeah. Yep. So we have this great demand and this potential um, fire from the next generation, but we just got to help them find great people to meet, great people to talk to. And as you know, one of the big things I emphasize um, both you know, in, in the work we're doing in the hub, but also in the teaching I do uh, in career strategy and, and business strategy at the Haas Business School at Berkeley is that it is, it is critical for people to, you know, get out there and simply engage in curiosity-based conversations. I, I, I cannot emphasize enough how critical it is to get people out of the building, quote unquote, whether you're in academia, get you off campus and get over to a water treatment plant. If you are an operator, get off the plant and get over to a lab. If you are in industry, get, you know, out of the, the, you know, the, the, the ex exhibition hall and go over and spend two hours with a regulator and talk to her about the practical issues she's seeing with these communities that are, that are struggling to comply with an ever more complex set of environmental regulations. And so that an, you know, a technology provider can truly maybe empathize a little bit. It's not just about making the sale, it's about really trying to help people, help our water utilities be successful.
Sure. And I like the fact too, Peter, that you talk about not only doing it, but messaging it, mm-hmm. writing about it, you know, giving information about it so that not only we in the water community understand it, but the general public does. Yeah. And and that's critical. I mean, it's going to be there, the will of the people, right? It, it is. And boy, Jim and Adam, I'll tell you, it, there's some fascinating um, uh, fascinating things we need to rethink about our industry, right? Because actually, I'll tell you, I think if you talk to most quote unquote seasoned water managers, there's an element to, you know, the less the public knows, the better. Seriously. I think that there's this attitude that, you know, water chemistry is complicated. I know we have these water quality reports. Let's just put them out in like 10 point font and like, you know, we'll do the minimum obligatory thing. I want people to get up in the morning. I want them to take a shower. It's the last thing I want them to think about is me. And, you know, I get it. I get that, that it's tough messaging complex issues about environment, water quality, health. It's tough to message that to the public. And it's easy to think maybe the best thing is to just be quiet and be invisible. But we've got an example now going on in California, and that is the desal community, which is trying to provide climate resilient, the only climate resilient water supplies for California communities is facing enormous backlash from, um, you know, people concerned about environmental damage. And all these years spent just kind of like, oh, we'll do this deal. We'll kind of like, you know, try to get it you know, done in the, 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 the cover of darkness. It's not going to work any longer. We have got a completely transparent world. And um, water managers need to understand that rather than, you know, try to think that they can get all this stuff done without notice, they should be proactively embracing the positive messaging that comes with providing safe, amazingly affordable drinking water, nature's best beverage to our communities and our, and our families. Sure. Um, you know, here's an, another example. I think, I think that in addition to teaching the value, the climate value of desalination, we need to be, teach our operators and our managers to understand the use of um, metaphor and comparisons better. Like one of the things that people always knock desal about is, oh, desal has so much energy. It takes so much energy. Oh, my goodness, the energy. We can't afford that much energy. You have to point to people's, did you take a shower this morning? Yeah. Did you use hot water? I did. Well, the, wa- the energy it took to heat that water to a comfortable temperature was more than twice the energy that would be required to desalinate the equivalent amount of seawater. So if you think that energy is too much for desalination, why aren't you taking cold showers? So we've got to sometimes use and frame our arguments in terms that people understand. I, was, I forget the utility. It might have been Houston. Um, um, where they had an image, they'd made a poster of like what one part in a million looks like. And it was a set of like four by six foot panels with dots that were like two point font dots. Okay. And they had this huge panel with this sea of blue dots and somewhere on the panel is one red dot. And I think that just was a great visual way to show people, you know what we're dealing with? We're dealing with very trace amounts. And it communicates two things to the public. One is, it's not that it's, you know, safe or unsafe, because certainly there are some compounds that in the part per trillion level could be a concern. The point is, now you appreciate how challenging it is for water managers to simply measure, right? It's, it's, it's the challenge 
being able to visually express to our public the simple challenge of purveying clean, safe drinking water to our communities, I think, is a, is a, is a critical issue. We as a community need to be sharing best practices. I'm so glad you guys are doing this podcast. It is exactly the sort of thing we need to be doing. How do we talk about water? You're listening to the Water We Talking About podcast. We'll be right back after this short break. This podcast is produced by Water Online, the leading web-based community for water and wastewater professionals. Showcasing the knowledge and authority of industry thought leaders, Water Online provides actionable content from vendors you can trust. And now, back to today's podcast. There's two things that I want to hone in on. So the first is that my sort of running quip is that if we as water professionals don't tell our stories, somebody Somebody else else will. will. That's right. And we don't know what they're going to say. So to your point about transparency in the industry, that's one of the biggest reasons we have to do it is because when a situation comes out like Flint or what's going on in California, if the water industry isn't on the forefront of it, we don't know what the backlash could be or what the press is going to say or what the media is going to say. So that's one. The second is that I want your take on this marketing story and this connectedness and this transparency from the time you led PAX or at the time you led PAX, because you had a lot of challenges there, but one of the biggest ones was you're, you're trying to communicate the value of a product or service to an end customer utility. And you also have this consulting firm in the middle who in some ways acts as a gatekeeper. What strategies are you using relative to marketing and sales and commercial to, to overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Adam. Great question. So for starters, for those of you who, weren't, who aren't familiar with Pax Water, so Pax Water Technologies in Richmond, California, um, developed a tank mixer for finished water storage tanks. You know, we have something like 100,000 water storage tanks on hillsides, up on stilts, no matter where you are. There are these ways that we store the finished drinking water and distribute it. And PAX had a very simple, frankly, idea that if you mix the water, that finished drinking water, you can prevent stratification and a whole host of water quality benefits, you know, can, can ensue. The challenge is people weren't people didn't know about mixing water because it all looked like it was one fluid. Like, why are you mixing water? It's all one thing. Why are you bothering me with this, you know, this mixer in my tank? Another thing for me to deal with. What a pain. So we had to immediately um, go into a sort of value proposition discovery process, where, which is often very hard for technologists to do because it's very natural for technologists to sit there and say, okay, I know what my technology can do. And it's like so amazing. And so it's obvious that the value is this, this, and this. And what we had to do is stop and actually sit down with, with operators, with managers, and we had to deeply understand exactly what they were contending with, with distribution system water quality today, how they were managing it, what their real fears were with respect to distribution system water quality, and what their aspirations were. We had to map the customer profile. And in the business classes I teach, we have this process called customer profiling. And this is the methodology we use. So with that, we began to understand how operators were orienting themselves towards compliance 
in these, you know, especially with the stage two DVP rule, which introduced a new complexity to how we're managing and, and understanding disinfection byproducts in, in finished drinking water. And then we realized, Adam, that there was a bunch of stuff that mattered, even if we weren't selling it. Like we were selling a mixer, we were selling aeration systems, we were selling dosing systems. But we also knew that tank maintenance mattered in distribution system water quality. We knew that coating integrity mattered. We knew that water age mattered. We didn't sell any of those technologies, but we wanted to teach our customers about all of it. So we would have these long, um, literally these epic half day um, seminars. We bring lunch, operators would come in and you know, you know, the operators would be coming in like four hours of this drudgery, you know, um, you know, four hours, you know, get my four hours of CEUs, you know, it's going to be painful, but I'm going to soldier my way through it. And we tried to deliver the punchiest, most high value content on everything, not just the stuff that we focused on, but other stuff we knew about. At the end of the four hours, we consistently had people staying for another hour, just asking questions. So I think one of the, that's a long way of saying what we tried to do was teach and share. We tried to share what we knew, not just about our own field, but about other fields that we knew affected the problem as the customer saw it. We tried to always, always keep our clients' needs in mind. We tried to be very empathetic with the challenges, not kind of critical, not like, oh, why is Bubba taking so long? You know, why is this PO not here? It's like, think about it from their perspective. Think about all the juggling they have to do. Think about all the balancing acts with all the other competing priorities. And then a main breaks in February. You know, it's like you have to understand all the challenges your clients are under. And when they, when they feel like you're going that extra mile and really trying to understand their position and their needs, I think that it really changes the relationship. And you get into a partnership where you're a trusted advisor for them and they are a resource for you. And I think the other thing you did a good job at Pax Water as well, Peter, was to tell that story to a lot of different decision makers, to the uh-huh. consulting engineers, not only to the utilities, uh, the regulators, the um, rep firms that uh, represented you throughout the country. I think, you know, th- that's the other thing. It's, it's not a story you have to tell to just one group of people. It's the stories that you have to tell in their framework to the decision makers. Yeah, and Adam, you said in particular about consult, you know, the consulting engineering community, we wanted to teach them, we wanted to empower them, right? It is the case that in the United States in particular, because we have such a disaggregated industry with you know, 51,000 public drinking water systems, that our small and mid-sized towns and cities are relying heavily on the consulting community to, to really be the thought leaders, to really be their, their intellectual resource, okay? And so you do need to understand the critical role that consulting engineers play. At the same time, it's critical to understand where the traditional mode can sometimes lead to a delay in making change. And it's very often the case that you can see a situation where you know, a consulting engineering firm has done, been very successful for a client for very, very many years. And it's gotten to the point where the client's, you know, kind of curiosity is almost atrophied, you know, and they're like, whatever you say, you know, hey, Lyle, what should we do? Okay. Can you do my CIP? You know, can you do my, you know, can you do this? And so I think we have to say, look, you got to keep the consulting engineers frosty. 
you got to keep challenging them. And, and, and they, we had some, we had some meetings, you know, where we go into, we, we go into, you know, uh, an office with very reputable consulting engineering firm. And they were just like really skeptical. Like none of the partners would show up for lunch, right? All the EITs were there, like eating the pizza. None of the partners were there. Mm-hmm. And we like have to stick around and say, look, you know, I know, I know Jeff is in today. I need to spend at least 15 minutes with Jeff. And Jeff would find like, you know, why are you being so assertive? Because Jeff, your clients need to know about something that you don't know about. And the best way for your clients to, to get there is for me to help you understand. So we were a little... I don't know. I want to say pushy. You, you should talk to some of the <laughs> talk to some of the consulting engineers. Some of them might disagree with the quality of that advice. But you know, <laughs> I think that we have to we have to simultaneously um, provide carrots, but also a little stick, and say, look, if you don't if you don't if you don't stay on the forefront, if you think you're going to dine out on this client, if you're going to be a rent seeker, you're going to be, you know, it's especially given, you know, information transparency today, you're going to sooner or later be called out. You never want to be there. You've got to keep relentlessly delivering value to your clients. Yeah. Being, a, little, I will. Yeah, being a little challenging. Yeah. In your messaging, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the things that I think the water industry has to be. They, they have to challenge people in their thinking around that message. Speaking of message, as we're coming up on time, this is this is how we like to end these interviews. So if you if you had an airplane, Peter, that had a trailing banner on the back of it, that you could fly in front of every water professional's house in the United States, what would you want that banner to say? You've got you got like a tweet limit, character limit. <laughs> Um, I would say, let's see how many, how many characters <laughs> you are saving the lives of millions of people. Okay. That's what that banner would say. And here's why I think it's really easy for us in this community, um, to, to forget the history of what we're doing. 120 years ago, we didn't disinfect water. 120 years ago, we had waves of disease go through our cities in a way that makes COVID look like, you know, a, a mild cough. Okay. We had thousands of children die every, every spring, every summer with waterborne pathogens and some crazy people thought to disinfect chemically disinfect water. And this began a revolution that has ended up creating safe drinking water and doubling the average age of homo sapiens. We're the only species on earth, Adam, that's basically doubled its lifespan. And if you stack up all the health innovations across all the decades, the number one health innovation is disinfected drinking water. Okay. And I bring that, I want, I would like operators to get up every morning, you know, they're making their coffee. She's putting her boots in her truck and she's sitting there saying, why am I going to work today? And the answer is, there are thousands of children that are going to play. They're going to go to school. They're going to have all these great things and never ever have the, the angel of death pass by their door simply because I am doing my job. Now, the reason I want to have that fire in the hearts of our operator community is that they then need to understand that what they're doing is important. They need to advocate for it. Mm. I really am concerned 
that the water community, because we are often nestled within municipalities and we're in you know, municipal politics, et cetera, it is so easy to erode the stature and the importance of, of the water systems that we're maintaining. And I've got to say, I don't, it, it makes me so, so sad that we have to get to these crises, these health crises like Flint, like Newark, before people wake up, responsible elected officials wake up and say that this is not just important, this is absolutely critical. And so we need to be a little bit more, I don't know, you know, a little bit more angry, a little bit more um, um, in the face to say that the, the, the infrastructure that, we, that, that our grandparents built and our grandparents paid for is being squandered and this shall not stand. We insist as a professional community that these, that the resources be, be devoted to making sure that this infrastructure is maintained sustainably. So that's why that banner flies. That's great, Peter, really good. And we really thank you for taking the time to uh, be on the podcast. And, Guys, uh, super great to see you. Always happy to talk. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. You bet. Yeah.